to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Priya Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. All of it is delivered in 50 minutes or less because you don't have time to waste. Let's get started. So, Jeff, tell me a little bit about what is it that you do for nonprofits since this is Nonprofit Lowdown and we're all about trying to provide resources and tips for nonprofits. So, uh, I serve as Executive Vice President of Anat Gerstein, and we are a full-service communications firm, and we work exclusively with nonprofits of all sizes, big and small. And our clients are, are comprised of a range of organizations such as social services, healthcare, education, as you know, youth, cultural, business, advocacy, and, and the like. And uh, Not Kirstein's been in business now for about eight years. I've been with the firm for about six, and uh, I specifically work on about 10 different nonprofits at a time. So when you say you work with nonprofits, like what, do you, what are you doing for nonprofits? Is it largely communications? Is it PR? Like what, what do you do? Sure. It's communications and PR. The firm and myself, we specialize in building clients' brand recognition and their reputation. We help them deepen and expand stakeholder relationships and partnerships with all types of constituencies. And at the heart of this, all of our work is focused on making sure that organizations can reach their goals, whatever those goals are. So I think one of the things that nonprofits that are always strapped for cash don't really feel like they can invest in is communications. Can you give us an idea about some easy, low-cost ways that nonprofits do some work around communications that would be that would improve their brand or their brand presence in the in whatever the community they're working in? So it's interesting, the phrase low cost, because time is money. So mm. for a number of nonprofits, especially smaller ones where people wear multiple hats, it's easy to say, oh, here's something free you can do or low cost. But then you have to consider how much time they need to invest in it if they're willing to do it. And social media is a great example of this. You can be passive and just have a social, a basic social media presence so people can find you and try to get some content up there regularly, even if it is one post a day, which isn't a lot of time. But in a way, that helps because I know when I'm researching a nonprofit, I check everything I can find on them online before I go in and meet with them. I want to see what they're doing on social media. That's from my perspective. If a reporter is researching and wants to find an organization that focuses on something like, say, homelessness, they're going to do research and they want to also see if leaders of an organization are out there on issues. So, yes, they will check an organization's Twitter feed or a Facebook page just to see what they're doing, often a website as well. It does take time to develop a website and to have a website that is fresh and new and up to date. But sometimes it's as simple as just having a very basic bare bones one that shows what you do and gives contact information, how to get in touch with them by phone, by email. Those things are really important at a very granular level that I actually find a lot of nonprofits don't do well. It's Mm. very difficult. It is very difficult when you're looking From a reporter's point of view, you're looking to get in touch with someone, you go to their website, 
and you can't easily find a number to call or an mm. address. And I get that a lot of nonprofits do, don't put their addresses on there, but if they don't have an easy way to get in touch with someone beyond filling out a form online that you don't know where it goes, it, it's a loss. Yeah. The other thing that a small nonprofit can do is if you don't know, you don't have a story right now, or you're not sure what the story will be that will resonate with media, just think about your organization as a whole. If you know it well enough, find a way to just follow your, start small, follow your local newspapers, see which reporters cover your neighborhood or your your issue, and then follow them on social media, follow their stories, find a way to connect with them, even if it is blindly calling up or emailing them to just say who you are, what you do, you know what you do resonates, would resonate with them, and you'd like to have coffee with them. Many reporters won't have the time to do it, but on a local level, if you know when their deadlines are, you find that day after their deadline, where you know they have a, a lighter schedule, a week to produce the next issue, and that's when you try to set up coffee with them. You even go to their office rather than make them come to you, which saves them time. Interesting. Are there any other tips? Like I, I know at times you've told us about tweeting at people. Is that is that an effective strategy people could use? I tweet at a number of people. I just, in fact, we had done this yesterday with uh, a client at, to get their message out there to reporters and actually were able to connect with some reporters that didn't see our listing on Associated Press Daybook. And by the way, that is also another low cost thing. If you're doing, if a, you're a nonprofit and you're doing an event and you're trying to get some media coverage, you want to make sure you send something to what's called the Associated Press Daybook. If it's in your area, in New York City, for instance, they will do a daily listing of all the events so reporters know what to kind of pick and choose from to go to to cover. As far as tweeting at reporters, I don't even just do that when I want to track them down and think about it from the nonprofit's perspective. You want to follow them if you can on LinkedIn, mm. see what they're posting, comment on what they're posting so they see that you're an expert. I think that's a very valuable way too. If you know a reporter in your neighborhood who covers an issue and they have a LinkedIn profile and you can connect with them and you can comment on what they post, that's incredibly valuable for them to see your name and know when you call, oh, this person's been reaching out to me. Yeah. As far as you know, some mistakes that nonprofits make. I mean, you pointed to websites. The other mistake that I see a lot of is that is like information overload and people think of websites as like a place to dump every little thing about their organization. Are there other common mistakes that you see that, that folks should be aware of? I think one of the most common mistakes is not being prepared and thinking uh, ahead to what you should be able to do if you hook a reporter. If you mm. get a reporter interested, some feel like I pitched the story, a reporter is going to be interested and do what I want. But if you haven't thought of what that reporter is going to need and how to respond to that, then what I've seen is people don't get back. A nonprofit won't get back in touch with me because they can't answer my questions once I have a reporter. The nonprofits I work with have come to understand in advance of me going to a reporter that, for instance, I want to know if there's video that you have if we're going to a TV station because they might need what they call B-roll to put in the piece if they don't have 
a camera ready to go out to you. You supply them with video that you have. Mm -hmm. You need to have a headshot of Ria Wong, for instance, if I'm pitching you <laughs> to a local newspaper, I better have your headshot ready because if they're going to run your column, they're going to want your photo and you should not have to scramble as a nonprofit to quickly take a photo that's not high resolution or make you look good. Mm -hmm. It's also preparing for the questions. What are the questions that a reporter is going to ask a nonprofit to understand the story, but not just the story that you want to tell. They may be saying, wait, you're coming to me on this story about immigration. Well, how do you respond to what the president has just done on this one immigration issue? If you don't want to answer that, and that's in the news now, you need to decide whether you really should pitch your story right now or hold off. And that's a mistake, is not really thinking of the climate we're in and the timing of when you pitch a story. Yeah, that's such an interesting point because I know, you know, we always pitch stories about education at the start of school. And so thinking about timely and seasonal stories to insert yourself into the conversation. Are there tips about how to do that? I mean, would you recommend Google Alerts as an example? Yeah, I use Google Alerts, but I do find that often, even, you know, with my current clients, I find that I use a curation program called Feedly, where I will more immediately see the stories that touch on these issues or my clients before I get that Google alert. So it's not always the easiest thing. It is really every hour or two hours trying to take that minute or two minutes even if it's to check to see what's trending on Twitter suddenly, mm. which I is the first thing I do each morning now because I want to know what topics are out there. You know, I will check the Times online, the Daily News, the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal. I have 1010 wins on. All this speaks to following the news and follow the news in your sector. So as a nonprofit, yeah, you're going to follow the nonprofit news whether it's Chronicle of Philanthropy or in the city, New York nonprofit media, you'll follow them. But I do find a lot of nonprofits want to break out of just being having an awareness in nonprofit media and finding ways to get into the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and to get on local television or national television. And they're not necessarily following them enough to respond to news, but also to angle and pitch a story the right way to the right reporter and at the right time. Mm, that's such an interesting point because I do think that, you know, some folks may have some unrealistic expectations about being in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And how do you advise your clients about that? I mean, if, if I'm not wrong, that's a pretty rare occurrence. It is a challenge if you just feel if a client feels here's my story this is just what i'm doing i think it's perfect for the new york times not really understanding what the news news hole is like for certain sections mm -hmm. not knowing for instance that the paper might have covered this issue before and not finding something really different or innovative we often have had clients say i saw this story in the newspaper go back to him and tell him i do this too that I should get coverage and we're, and we have to remind them they're not going to do the same story. And it's offensive to a reporter when they feel that you don't know what they cover and how they operate. And so, you know, a good example that I can use, I love talking about this one. One of my favorite clients is called the workman circle. Mm -hmm. They are a century old organization 
progressive. You know, they do one of their programming involves Yiddish online and brick and mortar classes. And so they wanted us to promote their Yiddish classes. And we can do that. And frankly, they have the largest non-academic based Yiddish program in the country. And we'll get some coverage because we've been able to angle it more towards there's a resurgence of interest in Yiddish. But at the end of a conversation with them, they mentioned, I always ask what else they have coming up. They mentioned they were doing something fun in Central Park where they were going to have a Yiddish for dogs, where dogs <laughs> go and learn how to talk to their, you know, their dogs in Yiddish. That to me was the way to get awareness of their overall Yiddish programming because I knew I could get a story on training your dogs to respond to Yiddish. So we started off by exclusively writing the New York Times only. They did the story and this is where the nonprofit prepared. They were great that they knew that that New York Times story was immediately going to generate interest. So they already scheduled the second Yiddish for dogs, which was sold out. And at that second one, we had Fox. We had booked New York one in advance, which helped build attendance. We had Facebook Live. We had AM New York. We had, I think WPIX might have been there as well. But as a result of that, they had to plan a third one. And this was only supposed to be a one-off thing. But the result for them was more people enrolling in their brick and mortar and online Yiddish courses, which was their ultimate goal. So what I'm hearing you say is that when you're thinking about possible angles, think outside of just the core work that you're doing and think about other creative human interest angles that could be interesting to reporters. Oh, yeah. I mean, something as simple. You're going to think all I do is Yiddish. It's not. (laughs) But over the last six, seven months, I've worked on Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish for the National Yiddish Theater Folksbina. And as much as the show has gotten amazing reviews, they've had to extend several times because all the shows are now sold out. The reviews themselves were able to generate tens of thousands of dollars in sales each time a good review from the Times or the Journal came out. But I wanted to also find creative angles to keep the stories going and not just have the stories happen when they first open. So I created a questionnaire for all the performers to fill out with questions about where they were born, where they went to college, where they live now. Do they have pets? What was the job? your first job that you had? I wanted to know things about them that were creative. And one thing I found out was about five of them lived in one neighborhood in New York City, five of the 26 cast members. So I, and they lived in Astoria, Queens. So I pitched a Queens newspaper, the story, and how five of these cast members live in one neighborhood Even though the show took place in Manhattan, I took the photo of them. They ran the photo on the cover, interviewed all five members and put, you know, put it as a cover story. It's looking at something a little different that, you know, that, you know, immediately will be attractive. So, for instance, you know, there's one other cast member whose mother is an elected official or an appointed official, excuse me. And so we're pitching that angle about the mother and son. It's just in your organization, you probably have a lot of human interest stories. You might not recognize them as being media appealing, but they are. And that's something that always helps the reporter. You want to put a human face on a story and not just write about process, but also be able to show how what a nonprofit is doing is impacting someone. 
And so that is also right in front of every nonprofit leader. The people that they are serving often can be those good stories. Yeah, that's such a good point. So I think one thing that I remember from my time as an executive director is just feeling totally overwhelmed with, you know, a to-do list about a mile long and feeling like, well, you know, PR kind of falls to the bottom of the list because it doesn't necessarily feel like it's on fire and I don't necessarily know what the, you know, the real value of it is in dollars. So what would you say to the busy executive who's trying to prioritize all of the different, you know, moving pieces and like what what is the real value of PR in getting it on your to-do list? I think a good nonprofit executive director leader knows to think of what the ultimate goal is first. Mm -hmm. Before you think of the PR strategy or the tactics you're going to use, a person needs to identify what is the goal, what the goal is that you want to attain. And is that cultivating a larger audience? Is it getting more volunteers? Is, you know, is it, you know, getting more contributions? Is it getting more government funding? Mm-hmm. Think of what that goal is and then think of what the strategy and the tactics are that you need to get there. And that's where PR comes in because PR is going to help you get the exposure. It's going to drive your demand. It's going to help you cultivate uh, volunteers that you never knew existed because they will see this on television. Or they will see this in a newspaper and think, this is an organization that was just validated by this newspaper or TV show. I want to get involved or learn more. Also, internally, one of the best benefits of good PR is that it really raises morale among the members of an organization because they feel like we are getting recognized for the work we're doing. Mm, Yeah, that's so important, like really contributing to a positive culture. Completely. And that is something that we also remind nonprofits that when this story comes out, you have to share it. You can't just say, great, let's sit back and wait for people to come here. It's, you know, we develop social media content to give to board members so that they can spread the word. We make sure that an internal newsletter or email is sent to staff, that the articles are shared with electeds that an organization wants to cultivate or to come to a tour. So for instance, you know, I work with Alliance for Positive Change, which is a uh, an organization that's been around for almost three decades, originally assisting those with HIV AIDS and that has expanded its services. And so last year we were able to get a story in the Wall Street Journal about how at this point in their history, they changed their name from AIDS Service Center in New York City to Alliance for Positive Change. And just on the face of it, that's a difficult sell to get a reporter to do. Mm-hmm. But in explaining to the reporter why they had to change their name, because they have so many people coming through the door with substance use issues or other chronic health issues that they had to expand the scope of their services. Mm. A reporter at the Wall Street Journal found that of interest. And I, I also have two other nonprofits now considering after a century each changing their names. And my goal is... I'm going to, or my idea is, I'm going to take these two nonprofits and pitch one story for the both of them because those two together will get a story, but separately might not be strong enough. That's such an interesting idea. So it sounds like the real value of it is is about general awareness and bringing unexpected resources to the table. Because I know when you had articles on us, it was a really nice touch point for me to reach out to donors to give them 
a reason or give me a reason to touch base and remind them that we were there doing the work. So even though an article may not have a huge circulation in, say, a local neighborhood paper, it's always a great opportunity to reach out. Completely. And to include, for instance, I don't know if your organization had done this, but I recall that one your former board president was profiled in the Wall Street Journal, uh, the donor of the day column, mm-hmm. and immediately you got positive feedback and turned that into, you know, some type of a platform that you use to go to organizations, you know, to use that as your entree to educate them and get more volunteers and get more people involved in your organization. We encouraged another client to print out, we gave them a nice looking PDF of the article to print it out and include with letters, hard copy letters that they mailed to high level donors, because it showed a little more respect for those donors that they were getting something nice looking versus just an email with an attachment because we wanted them to feel more appreciated. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. And and I really like the idea of essentially customer service, because if you think of your donors as being a customer in a sense, you want to make sure that they feel special and valued. Last question, Jeff, where can folks find you if they like what you're saying? Do you offer online training for EDs or like what would be the ways to work with you. So as far as Anat Gerstein, our website is anatgerstein.com. That's A-N-A-T-G-E-R-S-T-E-I-N.com. We are a New York City-based organization. We primarily represent nonprofits in the greater New York City area, though I've worked uh, on clients that have done some activities in Washington, D.C., and we've worked on activities on Long Island and Westchester, too. I do regularly speak at on panels, and I also can be regularly heard now on Thursdays at 5 o'clock on WBAI and on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. on WBAI in, uh, on radio shows where I also regularly interview nonprofit leaders in addition to electeds and other policy makers. So you are a man about town. I'll make sure to, to include your information in the show notes. Any last words as, as we are signing off? I think it's all about, once again, determining your goal. If you want to get good PR, you can't just say, I want to get my story in the New York Times. You have to have a good story. It has to be human. But you have to think what you want to get out of that story. What do you want to achieve? And that could be, again, just building an audience or getting more contributions. But these stories are your tactics helping you to reach your goal. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeff. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Rhea.